well, good afternoon, everybody, <coughs> uh, and welcome again, I think for most of you again, uh, to the Atlantic Council. Uh, I'm Dick Morningstar. I'm the founding director and the uh, uh, chairman of the Global Energy Center, and uh, I'm very pleased to welcome you all here for uh, a conversation about power sector transition in the United States and in Germany. It's an area that I've been very interested in since I came here two years ago, and we've always wanted to do a program on it, and here we are today. Uh, I think it's a very important and uh, timely topic. The power sector is rapidly evolving on both sides of the Atlantic as technology advances and patterns of energy consumption shift. And this is producing diverse options for our energy mix and for low-carbon solutions capable of addressing climate change issues. And the United States and Germany <coughs> provide different examples for how to approach this transition. Um, and in this context, it's important to compare the successes and challenges uh, that both countries have faced in order to make, make recommendations for future action both in the United States and Germany, but also uh, worth, uh, worldwide. And so this is a, an opportunity to explore the emerging future of this critical part of our societies. This morning, <clears throat> we actually launched an issue brief on this subject, written by Tom Cunningham, the Global Energy Center's Deputy Director, entitled Energy Venda. Pronouncing it right? I think so. Let's look at the expert. <laughs> uh, from Germany's past to Europe's future, which discusses Germany's energy transition from a U.S. perspective. Uh, I might add that uh, uh, this is Tom Swansong here. Uh, that uh, it is with <coughs> great moroseness uh, that I tell you that uh, uh, he will be leaving to go work for Statoil uh, in about uh, uh, 10 days uh, to be their director for international affairs uh, here in Washington. And Tom has done a great job here. Uh, he, you know, it's one of these offers he couldn't refuse, even though I've been calling him Benedict Arnold ever since he told me about it. Yeah, he, it just makes you want to stay. Right. But this afternoon, we're also delighted to have experts from uh, both sides of the Atlantic who can speak to the power sector transition taking place in the U.S. and Germany, uh, as well as the innovative approaches utilized and unique challenges ahead. So on the U.S. side, we're pleased to welcome John Banks, who's at the end. Uh, who's an adjunct professor and visiting scholar at Johns Hopkins, uh, actually at SICE, right? Correct. Part of Johns Hopkins, uh, who teaches a course on global electricity uh, markets, and he's also a non-resident senior fellow in the Energy Security and Climate Initiative uh, at the Brookings Institution, uh, where he's worked on research dealing with nuclear power, uh, the transition of the electricity sector in Germany and Japan, and electricity access and emerging markets, uh, among many other topics. And we also uh, welcome Ann Hoskins, who is the chief policy officer at Sunrun in California. Sun in California, I guess, is, goes together. The largest dedicated solar company uh, in the United States. And prior to that, Ann served on the Maryland Public Service Commission and the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, 
board of directors and previously has been a visiting research scholar at Princeton where she researched the valuation, uh, the valuation of distributed energy. And from Germany, <coughs> we are very uh, pleased to welcome Hans Wilhelm Schiffer, uh, the executive chair of the World Energy Resources Program of the World Energy Council in London. And uh, Mr. Er Schiffer spent more than 20 years working for the RWE Group um, in Essen, Germany, where he held many positions, most recently having served as head of RWE's General Economic Policy and Science Department until 2014. He continues to consult with RWE on issues concerning international energy policy and is a visiting lecturer on energy economics in the Mineral Research strike that, Mineral Resource Engineering Master's Program at RWTH Aachen University. I might say I spent in my days as a special envoy on energy, I spent a lot of time with uh, many of your colleagues at uh, RWE when talking about the uh, Nabucco pipeline, such as it, <laughs> such as it was. Uh, <clears throat> but we would... Uh, also, I'd like to remind everyone that today's discussion is on the record, and it is streaming live. And so please join the conversation on Twitter at AC Global Energy, and don't forget to hashtag AC Energy. So I'll now give, to the, floor, give the floor to my present, but almost not deputy, Tom <laughs> Cunningham, uh, to moderate the conversation uh, as we consider these issues. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, boss. Thanks, almost not boss. Yeah, I will be sitting. This is going to be a five-minute show. I'm leaving. No, no. So thank you all for coming. Um, I'm really excited. I've been looking at German energy issues for a long time at the State Department and here, and coming from doing my graduate work on German and European studies at Georgetown. It's really exciting to look at these issues. And Laura here from Excel and I were talking about, well, what's going on with this Energy Venda? Why is it doing things that, are, that seem so confounding? Why does it remain so popular? How is it pushing so many renewables onto the grid? What, what's going on with the utilities? These sorts of questions. So coming from that, I went and wrote a paper on the issue, which is kind of a real page turner. Emily Sandys, a former student of mine, she's here, helped with the editing um, and research of it. Hope you like it. So this conversation, though, is really to try to do a little comparison between the US and German approaches in their power sector. Um, bringing in renewables, what has that meant? What are the, some of the lessons learned? Not just lessons learned on each side of the Atlantic, but also, hopefully, are there lessons we can apply beyond the transatlantic space? We're doing some work at the Atlantic Council on power sector transformation in developing countries. Bob Eichord, uh, a um, uh, noted energy expert and former diplomat has been doing a lot of work on that and doing that with us. So there's a lot of reasons why there's interest in this um, in the context of the new election here, upcoming elections in Germany, how strategic is the energy sector, and these designs have implications. So we've got a, an expert on Germany, an expert on the United States from the corporate and regulatory perspective, and John Banks, who's kind of like me, an all-around guy, and he and I are going to... So this, we'll, we'll start with a, a presentation by Hans Wilhelm on the German context. We'll ask Anne if you can speak a little bit about the US context. And then John um, will 
bring some thoughts in to look at um, similarities and differences, and then we'll go after with the hardest, best questions we all can think of. So without further ado, the floor is yours. And feel free if you want to stand and walk around while you present or stay seated as you okay. like. Yeah. Thank you very much for the opportunity to present here on the German energy vendor. First of all, I would like to say uh, the energy supply in Germany is very different from the situation in the United States. Uh, we cover more than 90% of our oil, gas, and hard coal needs by imports. And we are phasing, as you know, nuclear energy out completely out by 2022. The only energy resources we have got uh, are lignite and renewable energies. Uh, lignite is a competitive energy resource in Germany. Uh, renewable energies are mostly not competitive and uh, are uh, dependent on uh, subsidies. The, the US will probably be a net exporter uh, within the upcoming uh, 10 years. That's what I have learned from the annual, annual energy outlook 2017. That is really a big difference between uh, Germany and the United States. It doesn't, uh, yeah. okay. Oh. I think you're holding it backwards, upside down, so. Yeah, upside down. There you okay, go. Yeah. Voila. I, there you go. Okay, this is Germany, and as you can see, there's only uh, lignite uh, and uh, not much um, <coughs> production uh, of oil and, and gas. Uh, and so we are very dependent uh, on energy imports, and that is a very different situation uh, compared to the United States. Another point is one-fourth of uh, German total energy needs is covered by imports from Russia, uh, the number one uh, supplier of gas, of oil, and of hard coal. Uh, and it's followed by countries like Norway, Netherlands, United Kingdom, Kazakhstan, but also the United States are an important supplier uh, for hard coal uh, to Germany. The German energy mix uh, differs uh, from, the, from the energy mix uh, in the United States. As you can see, uh, coal, in particular uh, lignite, has a higher share compared to the United States. Uh, the share of uh, coal is approximately 40% in Germany, and it's now 30% in the United States. The share of less in power, gen the share of gas in power generation uh, is less uh, compared to uh, the United States. The main reason is uh, gas is much more expensive in Germany, in Europe, compared to the United States. And so uh, coal is more competitive in comparison uh, to gas. Other differences are uh, nuclear energy has a lower share uh, because of uh, the phasing out of nuclear energy. We had a share of 26% uh, some years ago, but now it's 13%, and in 2023 it will be zero. And the last uh, difference in the energy mix is that uh, the share of renewable energies is 30% in power generation in Germany and 15% uh, uh, in uh, the United States. Besides these figures, uh, other differences are Germany has, two, has uh, nine neighbor countries, and these neighbor countries are connected 
uh, with the German system. The electrical system of Germany is connected with nine neighbor countries uh, we have got. And the third uh, difference is the United States does not have a unifying energy policy that is also mentioned in your paper that is different from the German situation. In, Germ in Germany, uh, we have got a strong uh, energy policy, a strong climate policy at uh, federal level. And the main very ambitious targets in Germany uh, in energy policy and climate policy are uh, the target is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 90 to 95 percent by 2050 compared to 1990, halving the primary energy consumption and increasing the share of renewable energies up to 80 percent in 2015. And uh, this project is based on uh, the assumption that a highly uh, industrialized society can be securely and competitively uh, supplied by a system based predominantly on renewable energy. Of course, that has to still do, to be proved. Mm -hmm. The story started in the early 1990s, uh, but um, the German Renewable Energy Sources Act, Act uh, implemented in 2000, uh, truly kick-started the development of renewable energies in the power sector. This law provided for guaranteed feed-in tariffs for 20, year, uh, 20 years after commissioning the plant concerned. Grid operators are obliged uh, to purchase the entire quantity of green electricity with priority. And the trading companies passed on the deficit feed-in tariff minus market price to customers by imposing a reallocation charge. And this has resulted in a tremendous increase uh, in power generation based uh, on the basis of wind and solar. You can see that in this slide, uh, the um, uh, capacity uh, has increased from 12 gigawatt only in 2000 to more than 100 gigawatt uh, in 2016. And uh, if you compare the peak load we have got in Germany, the peak load is 85 gigawatt. Uh, so uh, more than 100 gigawatt on the basis of renewables is really something. The share of renewable energies in total power consumption has increased fivefold from 2000 uh, to 2016 that is indicated by the ochre uh, line. Uh, this happened as a consequence of the generous uh, supporting scheme for renewable energies. And as you can see, the reallocation charge in total reached a level of more than 20 billion euros in uh, 2016. And the German customers have paid in total 150 billion euros uh, for the supporting of uh, renewable energies in the power sector. The <coughs> uh, so, so support charge has exploded over the last uh, few years and has reached a level of approximately uh, 70 euros per megawatt hour. To illustrate the dimension of uh, this charge, the charge is more than twice as high as a wholesale price for electricity. The problem for operators of conventional power plants is the wholesale price that reflects the revenues uh, for uh, the uh, 
power plants on uh, for the conventional power plants has declined um, within the last decade, which is due to the so-called merit order effect. Uh, merit order effect means the increase in renewable energies, the priority increase in uh, renewable energies has shifted the supply curve, uh, which is determined by the variable costs of the different power plants uh, to the right. And that means uh, that um, power plants with lower marginal costs are price setting uh, now. In the past, mainly gas-fired power plants with higher uh, variable cost where the price setting ones, but now after the increase of renewable energies, uh, hard coal fired power plants with lower uh, marginal costs are the price setting ones, and that means um, the revenues um, of the conventional power plants were reduced massively. And the second point is, uh, in addition, conventional power plants are suffering from reduced operating hours as a consequence of the priority feed-in of renewables. And the third challenge is that conventional power plants have to provide uh, for the flexibility uh, needed to meet not only fluctuations in demand, but also fluctuations in the feed-in of renewable energies. Yeah, this slide is also quite impressive. It shows the situation on the 8th of May 2016. It was a sunny and windy day. And as you can see, in, summer, uh, in some hours of the day, uh, nearly 100% of the total power consumption in Germany could be covered uh, by uh, renewable energies. That was the situation in spring, and uh, that's the situation when the sun and the wind uh, was in a very good position, and the uh, sun was shining and wind was blowing. But you can also have a situation uh, like this one. It was in winter, uh, only a few weeks ago, and uh, sun and wind hardly contributed uh, to the power supply. And so 90% of the demand had to be covered uh, by conventional uh, power plants. This slide shows the difference between the capacity and the power generation. Peak load, as I said, is around 80 gigawatt. On cold working days, it can be up to 85 uh, gigawatt. But we have got a capacity, as you can see on the left side, of more than 200 gigawatt. Half of it is on the basis of renewable energies, and half of it is on the basis of conventional energies. And that means in high system that means uh, that results in high system cost, costs, of course. And uh, the system costs are push, pushed further up uh, by the necessary redispatch measures and the required uh, extension of the grid system. Uh, we have to uh, extend the high voltage grid system and the low voltage voltage system as well, because uh, the uh, wind-based uh, power generation mainly takes place in the northern part of Germany, but the power is needed in the southern part of Germany, and so that means we have to build high-voltage um, power lines from the northern part to the southern, uh, to the southern part, but also the feed-in of um, P solar PV uh, needs uh, an increase uh, in the extension of the low-voltage system. So um, 20, 30 billions of euro are necessary in order uh, to extend uh, the uh, grid system. 
And this results uh, in uh, electricity prices for industry which are twice as high as in the United States, that's the average. And uh, if you compare the household pr household's price uh, between Germany and the United States, uh, you can see that the household's pri household prices in Germany are three times as high as the household prices in the United States. That means customer, customers, German customers, have paid and are still paying for the learning curve the country has been going through for solar, NPV, and also <coughs> for wind energy. But the good news is other countries are benefiting from it. There might be an opportunity in our session, and you announced it, to discuss the lessons learned from the development in Germany, and I look forward to answering your question. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hans. Uh, hold your applause, please. No, I'm kidding. Um, and that was good. And, uh, upside down. Oh, I've got it upside down. Yeah. Well, good That's afternoon. It's really a pleasure uh, for me to be here with you. And uh, as was uh, described in my introduction, I'm currently serving as, actually, I guess we'll go to mine. Okay. I'm currently serving as Chief Policy Officer uh, for a solar uh, residential PV company called Sunrun. Uh, and so I'm, a lot of my comments are going to be focused on distributed PV, but I think we can get into some discussion mm -hmm. about you know, broader uh, regulatory and uh, energy issues on the domestic side in the United States. Uh, very, very interesting for me to hear uh, what we've heard so far. And I think I can start out by saying that the United States has indeed been a major beneficiary of the work and the investments that the people of Germany have made, uh, particularly in PV. If you look at um, what's happening here you know, in the United States, you know, it took 40 years to get to one million solar systems around the U.S., and we estimate it'll take two years to get the next million. Uh, we're in a time of tremendous growth and customer interest in solar energy, and particularly in distributed solar energy, uh, which is why it's so exciting uh, for me to be in this, this role that I just started a few months ago. And, you know, indeed, part of what has driven this have been the technological and cost improvements uh, that we've seen. Uh, in the, in the uh, solar panels and inverters and other technology uh, that drives uh, solar PV in particular. So if you look here, um, a little hard for me to turn in here, uh, but uh, anyway, you'll see that just the growth um, that we've seen. And, and this morning, actually, you may see it on, on Twitter and some of the trade press today, uh, solar uh, industry has come out with a, a number of statistics that have really demonstrated not just solar, uh, distributed solar PV, but also centralized solar. It's been a you know, tremendous year of growth in the past year. And that uh, the U.S. solar market uh, has doubled uh, its annual record, uh, topping out at, at um, almost uh, 14 gigawatts of solar PV. So just the, just the level of growth. And also what we've seen in that has been the, the share of uh, PV in terms of in solar energy, of the overall energy mix of new generation that was invested in the last year uh, was also the greatest, greatest share. So just a time of, uh, again, uh, tremendous economic growth, but also I would say um, public growth, which is one of the things that I'd really, uh, public support, which is one of the things I'd really like to talk about because I think that's what's really interesting in what we've seen in Germany is even when you have had uh, high levels of, of rates, uh, you still have very high levels of customer interest and support uh, for, these, for these clean technologies. 
so also uh, what's been really important in the United States has been the economic engine that solar is, is playing. And I think this is going to be particularly important now. You know, we're in the new administration. Here in Washington, people are asking, what is this going to mean for renewable energy? And we feel quite confident that as a new leadership really looks at this and sees the amount of job growth uh, that's happened and uh, not just in, in a very decentralized way, particularly with distributed solar, really bringing jobs to local communities and the amount of growth that we, right now, this number actually is a little bit old. We had uh, 209,000 Americans working in solar, uh, but the statistics I saw today, which are had another year of data, were 260,000. So it's something that is consistently growing as uh, we're able to train new workers and give them these opportunities. And that has had a feedback loop also of expanding public support uh, for solar energy. Um, and I wish I could read my other slide there from here. No, that's OK. Oh, and this is the interesting part as well. And part of it is that the, the costs um, have dropped by more than 60% in the last 10 years. And again, I've got to give credit uh, to other parts of, of the world, obviously, uh, for some of the technology that's being developed in Asia, as well as the investments and, and the cost curve improvements that we've seen uh, from the commitment in Germany and other parts of Europe. Let's see. So, you know, in the United States, you know, one of the reasons it's difficult to really compare the United States to Germany is that the United States are all very different, all 50 of the United States. Uh, part of it is that we have a wide range of regulatory systems. The former chair of the FERC sitting in the front row. So we have a federal regulatory scheme, and then we have different state regulatory schemes. I had the honor of serving as a state regulator for three years uh, in Maryland, uh, which had competitive markets, uh, which there is some comparison, I'd say, uh, to the European system. But we have other parts of the country that are fully integrated. And so because of this, uh, the incentives for utilities are very different. Uh, whether you have uh, markets that you might be able to bid some of this into and, and get other types of value exist in some parts of the country and not in others. Uh, the other complexity here, and it's quite interesting to me, I think just from a political perspective, is that all of uh, the solar investments as well as the wind investments have benefited from either a federal investment tax credit or a federal production tax credit. And so as an overall matter, we have a strong federal policy in support of encouraging renewables development. Uh, we've also had some environmental policies at the federal level that have encouraged that. But what's been a challenge and makes my job you know, quite exciting is that when you get out to the state level, uh, the states don't have agree all have similar agreement or similar approaches on this. So you definitely have, so in the solar context, we have a 30% investment tax credit. But as you get to states, they've taken different approaches. And in some cases, States have, and I think I've got a nice chart on this. Um, let's look at renewable portfolio standards. That's been the predominant approach as compared to the feed-in tariffs um, in Europe. And you'll see that you know, they're quite, it, they've been quite popular. And actually, recently, there have been an, a number of states that have adopted legislation to expand their targets. And they, they um, go over a range of, of targets, um, some up to 50%, some lower, some are pure renewable. Uh, the latest, I'd say, fashion of this is to expand RECs to cover other things, like nuclear in a couple of states where they're calling those you know, clean energy standards. But the concept has been to try to have a competitive market, essentially, for this, where there would be a goal set, and then there would be the ability for compliance by trading of these renewable credits. And it's actually been quite effective in um, encouraging renewables development. But one of the challenges in the United States is that every state 
you know, defines renewables a little differently. Every state, some states have carve-outs for solar. Uh, all of these different changes affect the value, and it's it's one of the reasons again that that there's not uh, continuity uh, across the country. I want to actually talk a little bit before we get that. If I can go back to here, uh, some of the other uh, approaches that we see, and one that's been really critical for uh, the growth of distributed solar has been uh, net metering, which has been our approach again versus a feed-in tariff, which was an approach that essentially is very customer-focused in trying to keep it simple for customers, that essentially uh, they will you know, invest their capital or, or, their, or companies will invest and in, in enter into leasing agreements, and customers can essentially just have their meter run backwards uh, for any extra that, that they provide out to the grid and provide to their neighbors. This has been a very effective tool in terms of really democratizing solar and making it available um, to, to folks in, a, in an easy way. We're now moving into a new phase where we're facing some resistance. I think as this becomes more uh, popular, as we have greater uh, penetration, you know, it is starting to challenge some of the utility business models, some of the incumbents uh, who are in this market. And so now we're looking in some states, particularly ones that might have higher levels of penetration, of the need to see what is that next generation of policy that could work efficiently to ensure that customers who make this commitment, make the investment, can, fair, can receive fair compensation for what they're doing to contributing uh, to the energy mix. So that's something that's very active out in, um, we're probably you know, involved in, in proceedings you know, in 20 states you know, in the coming year. Uh, and then the, the last thing I wanted to touch on here, which is, which I will also get to on the technology side, is we're starting to see states engage in storage incentives and try to look at how are we going to add storage onto both centralized solar, uh, as well as wind, as well as, as um, distributed. So what I wanted to touch on here is, is uh, it goes back a little bit to this business model issue and also the picture of where we in the United States, uh, some of the decisions that I think policymakers and regulators need to be making as we start to get technology and we have where customers are able to have solar plus storage, which means they are able, they're getting to the point where they're actually going to be able to decide do they want to go off the grid. Um, this is something that we don't encourage. You know, we at Sunrun, and I think most of the solar industry, really wants distributed solar to be viewed as a really critical element of the grid and a source of grid services. But what's happening as we're out in the states having these debates, and we're seeing, in some cases, utilities proposing things such as demand charges, fixed charges, changes in rates which would have the effect of making it less beneficial to those customers who are generating this electricity to share that electricity with their neighbors and with their grid. Um, as we start to get storage and it becomes more economical, um, as we're seeing, for instance, in Hawaii right now, then you start to get this issue of, you know, are we actually going to take a path, which we think, the, we hope the country is going to take, of embracing these distributed resources and figuring out how to use them as part of the grid or are we going to go the other path, which is much more uh, everybody kind of protecting their own corner and losing the ability, potentially, of sharing those resources and really making our grid cleaner and more efficient. So we really see this as a very important time uh, for energy policy and for state policymakers to hopefully step back and look at what our options are. And just for a moment, just to touch a little bit on our vision as Sunrun, as a distributed solar provider, 
we see the future as being much more than just having so solar panels on your roof. We really see this as an opportunity to get into grid services on the grid, but also you know, helping to power customers who want to invest in electric vehicles, helping to you know, be involved in energy efficiency, home energy management systems. Where solar is right there on the edge of the grid, you're not going to have the types of line losses or some of the expenses in the large transmission investments that we've had to make in the past when we've had centralized resources. So we see this as the future and as an opportunity that is far more than the way it's sometimes portrayed as just an individual who has a solar panel on their roof and is getting a benefit. This is a, this is a real change in how we think the grid should be envisioned. And just as an example, and I had the, the fortune of going uh, to Hawaii a few weeks ago to see this, we have Sunrun has started to install what we call our Brightbox um, uh, product where we use Tesla batteries, but there's other batteries also that, that we think in the future will be used, where now we have a situation in Hawaii where, in fact, uh, because they did reach penetration levels, they have a rate system that is encouraging self-supply. So now we have customers who are demanding and willing to pay for uh, solar panels and storage and having the ability uh, to really what's exciting is use that storage to shift their time of use. So they're able to uh, generate you know, when the sun is out and then save it and use it later uh, along, more along with the peak. We're seeing similar kinds of opportunities in California where we have time of use rates now for people who are on distributed solar and, and under net metering. And again, this is an opportunity to sort of use creative rate making and technology to enable customers to uh, respond to challenges that are on the grid and provide services to the grid. And we think in the end of the day, you know, help make our system cleaner and more efficient. So uh, with that, I'll be happy to touch on sort of broader issues other than solar. But I think the solar experience is really instructive, one of how we can uh, again, benefit from lessons and technological developments in other parts of the world. Uh, I guess actually the last thing I'll close on is I had the privilege when I was at NARUC of serving as the chair of the International Relations Committee. And NARUC, uh, which is the Association of Regulatory Commissioners, um, has a really strong commitment to international partnerships. And um, they have a staff uh, that focuses on this, that works with AID, works with the State Department, receives funding from them and has worked very closely with uh, countries uh, in Africa, on the Power Africa program, as well as in Eastern Europe, and countries that are trying to figure out how to manage and, and develop mm -hmm. uh, regulatory systems. So I think that there is, a, there is a foundation for a strong relationship between US regulation um, and uh, European uh, and, and international regulatory efforts. So I really appreciate your efforts to bring this, bring this together today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no, that was great. And Nehruk is doing a lot of interesting work in that International Relations Committee. We, there was that panel that I participated in on uh, Sunday that looked at um, U.S. gas exports. What does that mean internationally? And what does the international gas market mean for um, domestic markets in the United States? So it is, it is great to know that there is, it's not just a localized issue. Um, and, and it's challenging in the power sector to, to see the international issues when Grids are off, you know, by nature, local issues. John, you've done a lot of research on this at SICE and at Brookings. Right. How can you draw some links together? Look at some similarities, differences. Sure. What a surprise question. Um, <laughs> so first, thank you, Tom, for. You uh, want a surprise question? <laughs> yeah, no, I, <laughs> okay. I, I, I know it's coming. 
Um, <laughs> thank you, and thank you to uh, Ambassador Morningstar and to the Atlantic Council for uh, inviting me here today. It's a pleasure to join the discussion. So I thought in the, in the introductory remarks, the, the, the short few minutes here, uh, maybe in really pulling together some of the, the comments and maybe adding some others. First, provide a, a bit of a, uh, an overarching context to this concept of a power sector transition, which mm -hmm. was in the, the sort of description of this event. And then throw out uh, a couple of uh, comments on similarities and differences to kind of get the ball rolling, touching on a few things that have already been, been mentioned. So um, I, I think it's uh, good to step back and sort of provide an overall context to this issue of the power sector transition. I think there's three major disruptors or trends that are affecting the power industry globally, including common to Germany and the United States. Policy, technology, and customers or customer engagement. Mm -hmm. And I think if you think about it this way, you can see some more, more clearly perhaps some of the, the differences and similarities. In policy, I think it's fair to say that across many power sectors across different regions, you see policy initiatives to move away from fossil fuels, to lower carbon emissions, reduce GHGs, um, to uh, promote renewables, essentially to move away from fossil fuels and to decarbonize. Now, obviously, there are many countries that won't be able to do this overnight or in, or in the near term or medium term. Um, they will be around for several decades, but clearly the policy trend uh, and this disruptor is pushing the power sector and policymakers to implementing policies and initiatives to move away from fossil fuels. Um, second in technology, and that's been touched on a, a little bit here, you're seeing um, major innovations and major cost declines in both utility scale renewables and in distributed energy resources. And DERs or distributed energy resources are rooftop solar PV, electric vehicles, storage, as we saw in the, in the slide, and energy uh, uh, efficiency and demand response technologies. And we're all very familiar with the dramatic cost declines, for example, in wind and solar. And that has translated into greater deployment of these resources, both utility scale and distributed. Uh, in 2015, um, in the EU, 76% of all new capacity additions were wind and solar. In the same year, 67% of all new capacity additions were wind and solar in the United States. And then thirdly, customers or customer engagement. I think um, as part of a, a broader societal trend of the customerization of everything, we're seeing this also happen in the electric utility sector where customers are demanding greater control and greater choice over their, over their energy use and over products and services and their choice of products and services. So as prices come down and, and technologies get more affordable, there's more demand on the part of customers for these technologies and services and utilities have to start paying more attention to the customer and treat them not just as ratepayers but as differentiated customers. Uh, as one uh, executive from a demand response uh, company phrased it, utilities are transforming from the monopoly provider to the provider of choice. So these disruptors clearly are mutually reinforcing and, and interrelated, right? So as policy initiatives take hold, they help to push the deployment and the commercialization of technologies, driving down costs. As the costs come down, they're more affordable for customers. Customers adopt them more. Utilities have to pay attention to customers more and engage them more. And customers themselves, both from the household level to the corporate level, are demanding policy initiatives for clean energy uh, and, and uh, meeting environmental goals. So I think these disruptors are kind of um, uh, br broadly applicable across a power sector in transition globally and are clearly applicable in, in, uh, in Germany and the US. 
Now, within these disruptors, there's clearly similarities and differences to bring it down now to the level of the two countries. One which has been touched on here, and I'll just make a few comments on, is, is in the policy arena. There's a very clear difference between the development and implementation of policy and the policy tools being used in the two countries. Uh, in our research and our conversations in Germany and with uh, uh, both proponents and skeptics of the Energiewende, I don't think there's any question that there is a remarkable degree of consensus across civil society in Germany and across the political spectrum on the overall objectives. Okay, so there is a broad acceptance of the need to address climate change, of the need to move away from fossil fuels, um, uh, to um, not use nuclear, to not use CCS, but to use renewables principally and efficiency and, and other, other measures. Mm -hmm. But there is a remarkable degree of, of consensus in building uh, overarching national federal policy in, in Germany and balancing environmental mm -hmm. security uh, and e economic goals. That is not the case in the US. I think you could argue from the 1970s and the oil price shocks in that decade, we have struggled really to establish a balance between economic and energy security and environmental uh, objectives in energy policy. And, and, and today, obviously, we don't have a, a central overarching energy climate policy, but in fact, we have a mix of federal and state policies as, as Anne was, um, was enumerating. Just a couple of comments on what might um, account for that difference in the US. Uh, it is difficult to build consensus in the, in the US, and I think for a number of different reasons, some of which have been touched on. Anne mentioned, and this is, I think, clearly the case, the sort of fragmented nature of the electric utility industry, right? The different ownership models, the different types of markets, the overlay of uh, federal and state regulatory frameworks, I think, makes for a more complex environment in building consensus. I think the uh, resource endowment of the two countries also complicates the building of uh, consensus uh, um, uh, policy. Mm. Uh, and clearly the, the hydrocarbon boom in the US and the, and the shale boom in the US has complicated the building of that consensus. Um, the role of the states is stronger. Um, th the debate over the appropriate role of government in energy policy is much more fierce in the United States than in Germany. Um, I think you've had since the 1970s a real roiling debate in the U.S. over what the appropriate role of government is in setting policy. Should it be more technology neutral or technology specific or more market friendly versus more command and control? Right? And we've gone back and forth and stop and start on various incentives and, and, and um, uh, in policies over the course of the last several decades. Um, I think you also clearly have a stronger, more influ influential fossil fuel industry in the United States, which complicates the building of a consensus in energy policy. And finally, more recently, say in the last 10 years or so, very distinct from Germany, you have much more climate uh, skepticism and denial, frankly, of the importance of climate change and existence of climate change. That does not really exist in a, in a, in a strong way in Germany, although with the rise of the AFD, uh, the far-right party in Germany, which has expressed skepticism on climate change and called into question some of the policies that you've mm -hmm. talked about, maybe that will change. But by and large, to date, there has been this remarkable consensus, I think, on the overall <coughs> objectives in Germany, and I don't think that exists in the yep. US. And then finally, just to throw out a, uh, a similarity, I think, um, in the two countries. So as you, as you add more uh, utility-scale renewables and distributed energy resources, you get some impacts on the system. As you add more intermittent resources, you will see some impacts and challenges that grid operators, policymakers, and the, and the utility industry have to deal with. And the first is the emergence of flexibility as a key paradigm or challenge in the market. As you add more 
intermittent resources, the rest of your system has to accommodate that and it has to become more flexible. You need more responsive load and you need more responsive uh, conventional generation to, to respond to that and to supplement that. And that is, a, that is a challenge that confronts, I think, both grid operators in the U.S. and policymakers in the U.S. and, and in Germany. Um, you have um, the rising importance of grids as you add more in, uh, intermittent resources and distributed resources. So at the transmission level, you need to ensure that you have sufficient transmission to connect your remote, remote renewables to demand. You need transmission to interconnect markets so that you can better balance, expand balancing areas and better balance intermittent renewables. And at the distribution level, as Ann was touching on, um, you have a, a, a very large <coughs> impact with the addition of all of these distributed energy resources coming online, connecting at the lower voltage levels, both in front of the meter and behind the meter, you've got significant challenges in the way the distribution grid used to be run. Uh, and the utilities have to look at how to integrate these intermittent renewables and, and run the distribution grid as a platform, how to price distributed energy resources by location, by time. It's really putting pressure on the way the distribution grid has been run <coughs> in the past. And finally, um, the addition of much more intermittent resources and distributed resources um, also puts pressure on the business model, on the way that the utilities have operated uh, traditionally. Um, and uh, until recently, so when this uh, effect, this, this impact of more renewables and distributed resources happened, there was all this talk about, you know, the utilities are dinosaurs, they won't be able to adapt, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, the death knell, the death spiral for utilities. But in the last several years, I've seen much more um, adaptive response from utilities in both countries. Right? There isn't talk about the changes being threats to the utilities, but the utilities starting to see them as opportunities and how they can take advantage of these transformative trends and disruptors going on. And with that, I will leave you with two quotes, short ones. One from Anne Pramagiori, who's the CEO of ComEd in Illinois. She said, and this is in line with the, the uh, uh, business model impact, we need a power system that is cleaner, leaner, and ultra-reliable, as well as a as service that can respond to the clarion call of the digital age, customized, connected, and communal. And then Peter Terrium, who was the CEO of RWA, he's now the CEO of a spin-off from RWA, said a few years ago, my dream, my vision, is that RWE will put solar panels on your roof, a battery in your shed, a heat pump in your cellar, and we will also manage this complex energy system for you. We want to be the holistic energy manager of the future. So I think this is, a, and since then, since he made that comment, um, uh, RWA has split, and he is now CEO of Inogy, which took the renewables grid and retail business away from RWA and left the residual RWA with the conventional fossil fuel and nuclear plants. So I think that the, this overall impact that, transition is, that a power sector transition is having on the utilities is presenting the same challenges to both utilities in Germany and the United States, and we're seeing some of the same adaptive responses, broader responses, although there are some, some differences as well. So I'll finish there and Thanks, those John. tidbits. That's great. That tees, um, that tees up the questions I want to ask, and I'm going to just ask a few and then let the audience ask some questions. You've already had to learn how to eat Caesar salad on a paper plate in a teeny little chair. You deserve, you deserve a reward. Um, so the... Uh, the, um, I always wanted to say that. The, uh, so Hans Wilhelm, you, um, your presentation gave very objective, excellent data about the renewables transition inside Germany. 
from the perspective, I think, of the World Energy Forum, where you're, or World Energy Council, right, where you're working. But maybe putting the old RWE hat back on, as John was saying, um, the utilities have had to, um, are now having, if you can't beat them, join them approach, right? So how successful has um, this transition in Germany been? Yes, they've deployed a lot of renewables, but coal remains a huge part of the energy supply. That's partly um, a reality of the fuel choice, but it's hard to incent gas to get back into the power sector in Germany. Also, utilities are holding the bag. I mean, John talks about how RWE has split off its, um, its fossil or conventional assets. Um, Aon has done the same thing, and Aon's CEO or of the new company that is, that is now focusing on clean energy is also talking about delivery of services, thinking about things at the distribution level. But the base load is still necessary, as your slide from the winter um, snapshot reveals. Um, but it looks like it's the state that's responsible for paying or for holding those assets, which are really expensive. So um, is there a way that this energy vendor going forward can do better? What happens to those utilities or the utilities for which um, what happens to all those assets that, uh, that remain less and less profitable, but, but remain really important for grid stability? First of all, I would like to say uh, the um, system, uh, the extension of the renew renewable energies was uh, quite successful. Uh, the feed system, the feed-in tariff system, uh, was very effective, not, not uh, necessarily efficient. Uh, a renewable energy promotion system, which is based on produce and forget, and we started with such a system, uh, is not a system which you keep uh, on a long-term basis. Uh, it's not a long-term solution, and it's only appropriate for the starting point. Uh, and um, one uh, lesson we learned is that the necessary extension of the grid system should go hand-in-hand -hand with the expansion of the renewable-based generation uh, plants. Uh, and uh, after we, we have experienced with the feed-in tariff systems, we now came up with a system uh, that uh, we do auctions, uh, tender systems can be seen as an adequate instrument in order to ensure that the dimension and the location of the investment are in line with politi policy targets and the power system uh, requirements. Uh, as far as the conventional uh, energy are concerned, uh, I told about uh, uh, suffering situation, uh, the um, decreasing uh, revenues, and in order uh, to um, keep security of supply, uh, we need uh, an additional uh, system, addition to the energy-only uh, market. Uh, we need a capacity market uh, for the conventional power plants in order to make sure uh, that um, the um, conventional power plants uh, are still operational, uh, with, uh, can still uh, operate uh, with uh, profits, uh, otherwise we uh, cannot um, uh, secure the supply in the future. Uh, battery system, storage system uh, are uh, not uh, on, on the way, uh, we, we, have not, uh, we haven't got uh, sufficient um, storage uh, systems and so we still need for decades, decades uh, the conventional power plants mm -hmm. in order to compensate uh, for the 
uh, feed uh, for the fluctuating uh, feeding of um, uh, renewable energies. Uh, the companies uh, like RWE or E.ON or Energy are uh, very much in line with the energy vendor. We want to promote the energy vendor. We invest in renewable energies, in solar PV panels, in wind ener energy. We are with one of the uh, most important offshore or wind energy investors. Uh, so we support really uh, the ener energy, energy vendor uh, and uh, we want to make it uh, to a successful um, uh, to, make, to, to, to make it uh, successful, uh, but um, uh, capacity market are necessary in order to uh, provide the necessary backup uh, for uh, these fluctuating uh, renewable energies. Thanks. Um, Anne, you're next. <laughs> the, uh, um, so from the perspective of a company, um, that focuses on renewables, you know, from that disruptor position that John talked about. Um, this new administration's focus is on, has been repeatedly on coal and oil and gas production, about increased production of these traditional um, energy sources. Is that focus incompatible with the market forces that have brought about so much, brought so much renewable energy onto the grid? Um, um, and. Uh, is this renewable energy deployment something that will happen regardless of that kind of um, federal level um, prioritization? Sure, so, thank you. Well, you know, we really don't know what's exactly going to happen in the federal policies. Uh, mm -hmm. We certainly are hopeful that, as I said, they're one of the core policies that's facilitated the development of, of solar and wind have been the renewable uh, tax credits. Right. And at this point, the ITC was already looked at a couple of years ago and was given an extension period down to 2021. And so, or 2022, one of those years. Uh, but uh, so, you know, our expectation is that as policymakers uh, turn at this issue and look at it and they compare the jobs that have been created, uh, the efficiency of the systems and just the technological improvements, mm -hmm. uh, that 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 has already been looked at, has been reformed, and, and that we'll, we'll continue on with that. Uh, but I think sort of from a broader picture, so much of the activity really is at the state level. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's really where I think um, it's going to be, you know, continuing to be very important for all of us to engage uh, with utilities who are regulated by the states, uh, with legislatures, and, and with regulators. And, you know, just to see that Again, at, at the end of the day, if you're looking at you know the need, you know some some of the issues that really drive state regulators. One of the key ones are always reliability, safety, affordability, and I think the reliability issue is going to become you know increasingly important because mm -hmm. we are indeed experiencing impacts of climate change, mm -hmm. and uh, certainly in some parts of the country. Uh, there is a strong desire to make sure that we have a diversified energy system. And this is a source of essentially private capital uh, that is helping to provide uh, diverse energy sources, uh, which are really consistent with officials who are concerned about reliability and security. And the other thing I'll note is, you know, after the election, you know, we did some polling about where the public is on this. And there's tremendous support for solar energy across the political spectrum. Something like 85%, look at my staff there, but I'm pretty sure that, that was the number. And you know, when you go into different states, one of the exciting parts about my job is that 
you know, uh, people are very different, uh, obviously, but, you know, in, in different states you have uh, a lot of different political cultures. And one of the strongest uh, groups of proponents for distributed energy are actually folks who have a very strong independent, independent streak and want to have greater control over their electricity and over essential supplies. And so we find in states that you may otherwise think of perhaps not traditionally interested in the environmental elements of this or the climate change issue are very strongly interested in trying to make sure that they have some ability to have input into how their, their electricity is produced and that they have something they can count on. So I would say it's going to be a really interesting time and that we are going to be out you know, working with policymakers of all different stripes uh, to help them understand you know, how these new sources of electricity are really, really important for our economy. Tony, you want to jump yeah, in? Yeah, so on this question of um, uh, different policy approaches and how customers are responding, so I think that rooftop solar PV has kind of served as a gateway drug for other distributed energy Wait, resources yeah. in both countries, right? So when we were in Germany, that one, makes of you the a things, pusher, one of the things we discussed was the feed-in tariff and, and how generous it was and how it has really spurred this deployment of renewable energy. But it's interesting that, that customers don't see themselves as being subsidized to put rooftop solar PV on their roofs. They see themselves as investors. Mm -hmm. And this has had this kind of circular logic where, you know, they for environmental reasons, but also for economic reasons, for their, the benefit that they get from the mm -hmm. feed-in tariff, mm -hmm. I'm talking about historically since 2000, they see themselves in, as investors. They're invested. They, they, they now constitute a renewable constituency, and they want more. Yeah. And that's why there's not that much pushback, really, at the household level, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. against higher feed-in tariffs. And now they're moving to market premium and auction, so it's different. But so, maybe something similar has happened, not because of a feed-in tariff, but in the US that jives with what you're saying, which is, People now see that some of these distributed resources, particularly rooftop solar as the gateway drug, um, as affordable. Uh, they can take control of their own energy. They have this independent streak or they're doing it for environmental reasons. It's opened the gates it's to, to other uh, right. energy choices, other technologies that are available to them. Yeah. And I think that's fairly similar phenomenon, although perhaps the, the drivers and how it happened was slightly different. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in Germany, there's a lot of, there's a top-down policy that has there's public interest in a certain outcome, right, which is a denuclearized, decarbonized energy grid. Other issues, you know, exactly how to get to it, I think there's a lot of trust or faith or allow the government to identify that. A lot of challenges at the utility level to actually make that happen. It sounds like, though, at the U.S., there isn't such a federal top-down signal or any appetite for one. So therefore, companies like yours have to arrange sell that product, and it is many different kinds of products and services that you sell. Well, it's kind of one thing, right? Yeah. But you have, you have to you create a lot of interesting tailored business models. So you show flexibility to show the different services it yeah. creates. Yeah, if I could just add to that, sure. you know, one of the issues which we may get into on, around the uh, sort of the role of the utility, mm -hmm. and I think one of the quotes uh, you had, I think, on that German company was they wanted to control it all. That's one of the debates that that we're going to be facing increasingly in the United States is which kind of entities do you want to be, you know, moving this forward and actually, you know, working with customers to uh, provide these services. And, you know, my view, I actually spent seven years at a utility before I uh, was a regulator. And, you know, my experience, you know, here at Sunrun is that, you know, there's tremendous benefit 
from taking advantage of competitive competition. Mm -hmm. And Sunrun is driven every single day to try to find out how we're going to be able to reach those customers, how you're going to get the costs down, how we're going to drive down some of these soft costs, which interestingly, also, I'd love to hear more about how Germany has done that because the soft costs of like actually permitting and the sales process and all the you know customer acquisition are much lower in Germany and other parts of Europe than, than we've achieved yet. But there is a driving need to do that as we compete with other solar companies. And I think just a very, you know, customer focus because you need to be customer focused because we need to sell the services in order to, to go forward. And so my hope is that there's a way that, uh, we, you know, we'll be able to find a path forward where utilities will really get to focus on where they have the comparative advantage, which is really managing that grid mm -hmm. and doing what we need to do to upgrade the grid so that we are going to be able to have these two-way flows of electricity and we are going to be able to use these resources to reinforce that, sort of along the models, like the Rio model in, in the UK and the efforts that uh, New, York, New York is looking at with the REV program that California is starting to look at, and to try to see where do we really have the advantages. Because while utilities certainly have strong relationships with their customers and generally thought of highly from their customers, that is not in their DNA to be going out and knocking on doors and going to Costco like we do to actually engage with customers to offer new services and to have that competitive pressure to figure out, you know, what are we going to do next? How are we going to get that solar and storage? And how are we then going to get into the home services? So, you know, our hope is we're really going to be able to um, find a path forward, you know, to really benefit, uh, take advantage of, of where we each have our strengths. Thanks. I agree completely with your excellent uh, analysis on the um, situation. Uh, one uh, important point is also that we have got 1.5 billion households who invested in uh, solar uh, panels. And of course, there's now an interest uh, in uh, keeping this supporting scheme running because uh, you uh, receive nice margin in this investments. I also uh, did it. I did the same investment for financial reasons, not so much for environmental uh, reasons, I must confess. And uh, also in the case of wind energy, there's the farmers and other investors uh, who benefit from uh, this investment. And now uh, you have a big uh, push in favor of renewable energies because of these uh, interested people, uh, uh, 1.5 to 2 million people out of 80 million people at least, uh, who are, have an interest uh, to keep uh, this system. And another problem which also arises and which is also uh, being discussed is that, mean, that means a reallocation of money from um, poorer uh, people to richer people because the richer people are in the position to invest, the poorer people uh, pay the bill. And uh, that uh, has also caused to the situation that we have to discuss about uh, electricity tariffs uh, because um, the people who invested in solar panels on the roof of the houses uh, don't pay so much for uh, the uh, tariffs and the other people who are not in the position to do that Still have, um, to pay. Uh, have to spend more money for uh, the grid fees. That is also a discussion uh, we have got in Germany. Well, let's go to questions from the audience. I know we've got a few interested people. We've got um, a microphone runner, this gentleman here. And we'll start with uh, Bronco Terzic, who is our plant. He's a, we planted him here. He's a senior fellow with the Global Energy Center, former chairman of the FERC. Thank you. I was a state commissioner as well, but I'm speaking as a German-born person. Hiya. And uh, 
Uh, my question has to do with nuclear power. You mentioned that uh, Germany's nuclear plants would be closed in a relatively short period. I'm wondering if uh, the renewables do not grow as fast mm -hmm. between now and 2024, 2025. Would uh, Germany policymakers reconsider lengthening the time they keep the nukes for uh, greenhouse gas reasons? I would say definitely not. Uh, there's no political party uh, in Germany uh, who is in favor of extending, extending uh, the use of uh, nuclear power plants. Uh, you mentioned the AFD, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't take this party serious. Uh, but all the other parties, uh, the, you don't want uh, to or you don't. the Conservative <laughs> Party, the Liberals, uh, the Social Democrats, the Green Party, uh, and the uh, um, majority of the population is in favor of phasing out nuclear energy. And I, I would say if one party would dare accept the AFD, that's a different situation, but if one of the big parties would dare to say we come back to uh, nuclear energy and to extend again after we had uh, two U-turns in the case of uh, uh, nuclear energy, uh, that would be, uh, I don't say they would lose uh, millions of uh, voters and uh, uh, that would be not advisable to, and, and all, all parties know that. And so now I, I would say definitely uh, we uh, never will come back uh, to an extension of uh, nuclear power plants and we are not going to build any nuclear power plants in the future. And, uh, we, and you are right, we are in the position, of course, um, the increase of uh, renewable energies is uh, uh, just, uh, uh, just can compensate the reduction uh, in the um, uh, nuclear power plant uh, uh, generation. And that means uh, that in 2030, uh, more or less the same um, number of um, power generation has been uh, provided by fossil fuels uh, compared to the si situation today and compared to the situation even 20, 30 years ago. And that means it, it's quite hard, of course, uh, to reduce uh, CO2 emissions uh, anymore because the first step until 2022 is uh, to compensate uh, the CO2-free nuclear power plants by, um, by renewable uh, energies. And that makes it very difficult uh, to achieve uh, the ambitious targets. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't know and I don't believe that we are able to achieve the 2020 um, uh, target. The uh, 2020 target is reducing uh, the uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 40% uh, compared to the level in 1990. Uh, by 2016, we have achieved 27.5%. Uh, that means within the next four years, we had to achieve another <coughs> Um, another 12.5 uh, percentage points uh, mm -hmm. reduction in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and I think that is not feasible. And uh, there is another point I would like to come back to your question. Uh, is it necessary uh, to uh, get more gas into the German system? And my answer would be in this case also, no, I don't see the reason to uh, uh, get more gas into the uh, German uh, system. We have got an emission trading scheme, a CO2 emission trading scheme on the European level. There's a cap on CO2 emissions in, in the European um, uh, system. And uh, if uh, any government actions 
would lead to a reduction of uh, coal by increasing gas. That would, would even mean that the total greenhouse gas emissions would increase because uh, we had to import more gas from Russia. Russia is the only supplier. And because of the emissions intensity of Russian gas production. Yeah, and because of the emission intensity of gas uh, production uh, and um, transport of uh, Russian gas, and because of the fact uh, that the um, emissions uh, which um, we get uh, in the production fields in Russia and uh, in, during tra transport, mm -hmm. uh, which are not covered by the European emission trading scheme, uh, the emissions uh, would even increase instead of decrease if uh, we are phasing out uh, coal and increase uh, the um, uh, share of uh, gas. And so I don't see any political reason uh, to do something uh, to replace coal uh, by gas. That is in Germany, as you know, a big discussion, especially the Green Party, they try to uh, replace uh, coal uh, by uh, gas after um, um, nuclear uh, energy is uh, replaced. They now try to replace coal by gas, but that is only something of the uh, Green Party. But uh, it's, it will be exciting. It's a, it's a provocative. Um, point that yeah. you're making and an important one talking about the overall and this uh, this challenge about the European-wide um, carbon trading but national uh, renewables targets um, sort of measured at the EU level a lot of interesting balances um, and you could also add in I think Germany is getting rid of nuclear power but still importing uh, electricity from France which yeah. is nuclear generated yeah. um, let's go to some more questions oh hello um, and when, when you're asked, uh, please, um, you're next, sir. Um, um, please uh, state your name and affiliation. Sure. So I'm Laura Pierpoint, and I'm with Exelon. I'm part of the corporate strategy team there. I'm wondering if actually all three of you could speak a little bit more about the role energy efficiency is likely to play going forward. So particularly in Germany, I'm interested, uh, I read actually with great interest in Tom's fantastic paper that, uh, that while it's true that electricity rates are quite high for residential customers in Germany, the bills are actually relatively low compared to what we see in the US, uh, in part because of very deep energy efficiency uh, retrofit they've done and I'm wondering if those were incentivized by the tariffs or if uh, or if this is something that's sort of more endemic in German culture um, but then particularly in both Germany and the United States I'm curious about what the opportunities look like going forward in the US certainly uh, energy efficiency is a reason why we're seeing uh, low growth rates of electricity uh, out in the future but um, but really to understand what is anything going to change is there a huge opportunity there still to be tapped in both countries uh, or are we likely to see other dynamics playing great roles in shaping our energy mix. Uh, let me jump in real quick because it falls in the category of a sort of difference that I didn't mention beforehand, but as you alluded to, it's it's correct. The, and I may be off by a little bit on the, on the numbers, but um, average German household consumption per year is 3,500 kilowatt hours. In the United States, it's over 10,000, right? So the impact that a higher bill is going to have on a U.S. household, on the levels that you saw in the Energiewende, is going to be would be substantially more impactful than what you see on the average German household. So the level of efficiency and use per household matters a great deal, I think. Um, in, right, in Germans see about double the, impact, the costs, but and, are three times more efficient. And, and, in, and in, interestingly, the um, 
the percentage of disposable income spent on electricity has remained remarkably consistent in Germany throughout these increases in the EEG surcharge. It's mm -hmm. ranged, I think, correct me again if I'm wrong, but somewhere around two, and a, two, two and a half percent. It's that's about the same of what it is in the United States. Interesting. Well, I can, I can answer that a little bit. So you know, energy efficiency is a policy that I think almost every utility commission in the country uh, supports to some degree. And certainly in Maryland, I think Maryland is one of the leaders in terms of you know, promoting different options. I think some of the um, challenges with energy efficiency that aren't always mentioned, though, is how do we really share those benefits with all ratepayers? Um, you know, we're getting to the point, I'd say, actually, where you know, surcharges in some of the states on these are you know, hitting 6 $7 a month and challenges of getting those benefits to the lowest income customers. I mean, we hear a lot of talk about that in distributed solar, but it's a challenge across the board in terms of making sure when you have these social policies and uh, policies for very important purposes, such as energy efficiency, that we find a, a good way to deliver those. And I know that's something um, that different states are, have looked for different approaches on that. One of the interesting things that opportunities that we have going forward, and if you think about the chart I had, of where we're going with electrification um, is that there's the opportunity um, for us to actually increase demand uh, with electrification as customers start to look to things like electric vehicles, having the battery services, having the grid services. And I think through that, you know, if you can combine that with energy efficiency standards on some of the appliances, um, other incentives for things like you know, audits and the like so that you're, you know, improving our efficiency and, and usage, but then also looking for ways to take these clean energy sources, such as the distributed energy, to fuel, you know, electric vehicles, um, solar-powered water heaters, all of those kind of things. There's a real opportunity for us to have an overall, you know, uh, positive impact both on the economy and as well as on issues like the GHGs. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think this just, again, reinforces the need for, you know, utilities and energy companies to be working with some of the competitive um, energy efficiency providers and uh, other distributed energy resources to figure out, you know, how we can move forward. Well, those gains will emerge as we think more holistically about the role of electricity. I think so. And the kinds of services in transportation and elsewhere. I would like to agree Please. that uh, energy efficiency is the most important tool in order to reduce uh, uh, CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. uh, renewable energy is increasing. Renewable energy is uh, also, of course, very important. And I think the third tool is, uh, we haven't discussed it, uh, carbon capture and storage. Uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, concerning carbon capture and storage, the United States and also Canada are much better than, than Germany. Uh, we are, uh, after phasing out nuclear energy, after um, phasing out, trying to phase out um, coal, at least uh, by some parties, uh, we uh, also, uh, also uh, nearly phased out uh, CCS. But I think uh, it's not a, a good decision because uh, all the studies uh, prepared by the International Energy Agency, for example, show uh, that we cannot achieve the ambitious target, without uh, targets, targets without CCS. We need everything. It's not a question of either or. We, we need energy efficiency. We need uh, an increased, uh, increased renewable energies. Uh, and we need uh, carbon capture uh, and uh, storage. In Germany, uh, energy efficiency is really a success uh, story. Uh, uh, we had an increase in the GDP 
by about one-third from 1990 to 2016, but the primary energy consumption decreased, even decreased, so um, uh, very good success in, in energy efficiency. The houses are uh, nicely insulated normally, especially in new houses, but also old houses. Uh, that is an advantage uh, possibly to the United mm -hmm. States. The cars um, uh, need less um, uh, fuel compared to most of the cars in, in the United States. I accept, of course, you have another style of living, and it's different, of course. Uh, but uh, in, uh, uh, I would like to summarize in that way that energy efficiency is really uh, an important tool and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, possibly the most important one. We have time for a couple more questions. Sir, you in the front. Um, raise a hand if you still have a question. That'll probably scan. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm Steve Herman with Energy Capital Partners. Going back to Germany and your slide on the prices, on the uh, prices to industry, I, I, I noticed that uh, Germany relative to most countries, especially the U.S., but even uh, other mm -hmm. Euro European countries, uh, the industrial price is much higher. To what extent has this penalized uh, German industry in competing in world markets? Good question. Yeah. Competitiveness. Uh, it's a burden on uh, the German industry, and it's uh, not only the electricity prices, uh, it, it's also the gas prices, which are much higher in Germany compared to the United States. Mm -hmm. And in, in your paper, you also mentioned that, for example, for example the chemical, chemical country BASF uh, has invested in the United States because of high energy prices. Uh, it's surprising how much energy, how much electricity uh, these big companies in Germany is really industrialized company, mm -hmm. uh, country. Um, uh, about 50% of our electricity consumption is consumed by um, by industry and only one quarter by households and the other quarter by uh, smaller um, uh, by, 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 by the middle stand by the mm -hmm. uh, smaller companies. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing uh, we want, uh, with one, with which we want to avoid um, uh, that uh, investment is not uh, going anymore to take place in Germany in energy intensive industry is that we exempted uh, the um, uh, energy intensive industries from the high burdens of the Renewable Energy Act. Uh, the um, very intensive industries pay either uh, nothing uh, for reallocation charges on renewable energies or only a very uh, slow amount, uh, just in order to keep the competitiveness of uh, these industries such as such as uh, steel industry, chemical industry, aluminum industry, and that is very important. Otherwise, we would lose uh, them and we would uh, get the right. investment that, to other countries. Right. So that the German law for subsidizing renewables with the feed-in tariff exempted energy-intensive yeah. industries, yeah. Yeah. which yeah. the European Commission um, had, had, a, had a competition enforcement investigation to see if that was fair for other European countries to see that benefit and they, and they allowed it to pass which kind of shows the need in Europe to incorporate um, competitiveness for energy intensive industry with any kind of electricity design. You had a question? I think and then you have a question sir then we'll try to get in the wings if you don't mind. We might not have time for everyone. Hi um, my name is Anne. 
And um, I'm actually from Germany. I'm currently at the Climate Institute here in um, DC. So there was a, and that question is for you, Anne. <laughs> there was a committee, subcommittee hearing this morning on modernizing the grid and um, several witnesses brought up the need for a national grid. And you were talking about these two paths that can be possibly taking the integrated grid versus grid defection. So I was wondering if a national grid, if that's even possible, um, could offer a solution to between path one and path two. Right. To have um, a more integrated grid. Sure. I, I didn't um, hear what happened this morning uh, at that hearing. I'm assuming they were focusing more on our transmission grid, uh, which is generally, uh, you know, what is our high voltage, uh, which is obviously very important as you look at things such as uh, build out and access to uh, wind and other renewables and even other uh, baseload uh, sources and uh, utility scale solar. I think what I was talking about had more to do with our distribution grid, which are the which is the grid that is operated really at a state by state level, and which really adds to the complexity. It would be a little hard for me looking at Bronco too to envision that ever being nationwide uh, because we couldn't get everybody to agree. But I think what tends to happen in the United States, though, is we do have the benefit because we have these 50 different laboratories. Um, you know, folks trying different regulatory approaches to figure out how best to integrate it, and then they, they tend to get adopted. So, you know, in this case, you know, the states to watch are California, New York, Massachusetts, um, a few others, but uh, Minnesota right now, there's states that are really uh, trying to look at ways to adapt the regulatory structure so that you could, you know, enable utilities to continue to support and upgrade the grid, but at the same time, not put undue burdens on these new technologies so that customers won't have the incentive to uh, really share their resources and become part of an integrated grid. So it's, I think it really is going to be more on a state-by-state -state basis, potentially with the exception that right now the FERC um, has opened a proceeding to look at uh, how the wholesale markets might be able to incentivize uh, distributed energy resources and storage. So that's another element that really is just going to add some more complexity to it. But I think we'll, we'll start to see potentially some regional approaches on some of this, but you know, probably certainly not nationwide. We've got one minute to go. So, sir, you have the last question. Okay. Uh, Jeff Gibson from SISEC one of Professor Banks' students. Many of us are here today. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to ask you a more about how Germany and the U.S. are successfully incentivizing energy efficiency, specifically deep you know, retrofits of existing building stock. I mean, in America, only 4% of our commercial building stock, you know, it's 93 billion square feet, are even rated. Um, and sure, we've got ratepayer-funded utility incentive programs. We've got an ESCO industry in both countries. But, you know, I don't think the penetration's really there. One interesting solution, Anne, you mentioned was these building uh, and home energy management systems where you kind of take humans out of the equation, wow. which isn't a bad idea, and have the grid, the buildings, the vehicles all talk to each other. So, you know, what can we do better in, in both countries to incentivize energy efficiency? Thank you. Quick responses from each. Uh, yeah, we have got uh, regulations and incentives uh, for increasing energy efficiency in buildings, and uh, I think that worked, worked quite well. Uh, regulation for, for new houses uh, really reduce uh, the, the energy consumption, and uh, the owners of new houses are also obliged uh, to use uh, renewable energies uh, in, in their um, 
buildings. Of course, that increases uh, the costs for, for the houses, and that is also a discussion uh, on the other side. Uh, and we have got the CO2 standards uh, in the transport sector for cars uh, on the basis of European regulation, and that, of course, leads also uh, to more efficiency in the transport uh, sector. Thanks. Anne? Yeah, just I think a quick thing, you know, separate from what I'm involved in now is there's been a, a very significant investment across the country in smart meters in a, a, a large number of states at this point, which I think the potential of those smart meters has been very underutilized and under-realized. Uh, there's a lot of data that's coming out. There's a lot of opportunity for empowering customers to use the information that's there to change their consumption. Uh, that can have an effect on either, you know, total overall use, but also changing the demand so that we might have less peaks and less need for some of the peakers that uh, have, you know, very, you know, damaging environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. And so, as you mentioned, I think if you can find a way to also make this data available to, in a, in a more accessible way to third-party providers, you're going to have their competitive uh, interest uh, spur a lot of creativity as we're already seeing, whether it's the Nest thermostats or others, right, to be able to come up with tech, you know, use technologies to empower customers to be able to take greater control of their energy use. And I think that's really, really um, the next great opportunity for us with energy efficiency. Well, I would just say, finally, uh, what I mentioned earlier on that there's much more attention to distributed energy resources at low voltages on the grid, both in front of the meter and behind the meter, and states right now, New York in particular, and others are experimenting with how to better integrate those distributed resources, including energy efficiency, price them by location and by time. And I think that you're going to see, you're going to need to have more effort uh, on how all of this is going to play out from a regulatory perspective. How do you handle, how do you price different distributed energy resources? Who's allowed to build and operate? Who's going to serve as the platform provider, to use the language from the New York Rev, right, the distribution system platform provider? So I think what will ultimately spur efficiency, more efficiency, as part of a broader range of distributed energy resources is figuring out the regulatory model surrounding DERs mm. on the grid. That important but not well understood issue of regulation, <laughs> how to do it better. So all the pressures on Nehruk and on, uh, and on Bronco. Well, with, with that, everybody, thank you all for coming. Thank you to our panelists. Um, thank you. And, uh, and uh, thank you for coming to the Atlantic Council. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much.